0: John chapter 10, reading from verse 22, our Lord Jesus Christ has been preaching himself. He has self consciously set himself forth as the only way to the Father, as the good shepherd who has come to lay down his life for the sheep. The Jews had become infuriated because of these words, verse 19. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, and he's quoting from the 82nd Psalm, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. Let us pray. Father, we have come as beginners in the school of Christ that we might sit under the ministry of your word. We seek together the help of the Holy Spirit that your word may not remain a dead letter but may come to us with life and with power. You know our hearts. You know our circumstances. You know our innermost needs. Speak, Lord, we pray. Impress your truth, transformingly, even savingly and sanctifyingly, to all of our lives. Meet with us, we pray, and we ask it all. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen. The scripture said our Lord Jesus Christ cannot be broken. We should note first of all the context in which we find those striking words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has been proclaiming himself. He has been preaching himself. He has been setting himself forth as the sent one of the Father. And this comes to something of a climax in verse 30, where Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And it's in the wake of this statement that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's the context. They had tried to do the same thing back towards the end of chapter 8 and now they're at it again. Jesus' self-proclamation is piercing their consciences, troubling their hearts, provoking the enmity That Satan surely is fomenting within them, and they are seeking to kill him. Now, what I want you to notice, first of all, is that these men who are seeking so violently to kill our Lord Jesus Christ, these men who were so infuriated by our Lord Jesus' teaching that they wanted to kill him, were men who were absolutely committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. They were jot and tittle inerrantists. They were men who would have died in defending the absolute authority and infallibility of the Scriptures and yet, at the same time, They were men who were a diameter removed from the saving grace of God in the gospel. And I make that point right at the outset, first to myself and then to all of us together, that we might be reminded at this conference of the tremendous danger that has always surfaced in the life of the church, of divorcing the Scriptures from worshipping, adoring, and and serving the God who expired the Scriptures. We had something, a little of that in our previous address. Remember our Lord Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. These men who are out so satanically, to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, the sent one of the Father, were men who would have died rather than deny jot and tittle inerrancy. Earlier in John chapter 8 at verse 47, our Lord Jesus put his finger on exactly why these men were the way they were. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I find this a salutary thought that it's possible to be intellectually committed to the verbal jot and tittle inerrancy of Holy Scripture and yet be a diameter removed from the God who inspired the Scriptures. And if nothing else in this address, brothers, let us take that to heart. Let us guard our hearts against thinking that as long as we subscribe to biblical inerrancy, all is well with us. Because that may be a mask for a heart that is far removed from the God of grace and from the experience, the saving experience of that grace in our Savior Jesus Christ. When I studied theology at Edinburgh University in the 1970s, I was taught by some very eminent professors. But the vast majority of them were men who denied openly, publicly, with scorn, the infallibility and inerrancy of God's Word. What was their problem? Clearly their problem was not that they were intellectually deficient. Their problem was simply that they were men yet held in the thraldom of sin. Their minds and hearts were blinded to the truth of God, to the glory of God revealed in the Scriptures of God. That impressed me deeply. And many years later, I read these words in John Owen when he said, Without the Holy Spirit... We would as well burn our Bibles. Without the Holy Spirit's regenerating, renewing, transforming ministry in our hearts, the Bible would remain to us an absolute conundrum. It would be not only a dead letter, it would just seem to us utterly bizarre. The truths that it confronts us with and its self attested claim to be the infallible, inerrantly true, authoritative word of God, we would just turn up our noses. And when Owen says, without the Holy Spirit, we would as well burn our Bibles, he was doing nothing more than echoing the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit They are spiritually discerned. It takes the renewing, transforming, gracious, sovereign, empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to draw forth our hearts to the Christ who is set before us in Scripture. And when the Holy Spirit does that, every doctrine in Holy Scripture not only becomes instantly believable, But we embrace them, heart and soul. Because we find them in the word of the God who has come to us in his grace and mercy. In the spirit of his son. And brought us into his kingdom. Uniting us to his son. Calling us his sons and his daughters. But what particular response does Jesus make to these men who pick up stones and intend to kill him. Well, in essence, he says to them three things, does he not? He says to them, first of all, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of Man? Let me note just three simple things about our Lord's response. First of all, he speaks of Scripture in the singular, not the plural. And the Scripture cannot be broken. To our Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture was an organic whole. All of it, all of it the theological, the spiritual, the historical, the moral, the scientific, the geographical is Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, pasagraphi theopneustos, all scripture is God-breathed. There is no trace of limited inerrancy in the thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in his response, Jesus assumes the verbal inspiration of scripture, does he not? Is it not written in your law? And he's quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. I said, you are gods. The Lord Jesus' whole argument rests on one word in Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, we don't need to spend time asking the question, well, who are these gods? I think most probably they are the judges the representatives of God in in ancient Israel who were behaving abominably. But just simply notice that to our Lord Jesus Christ, one word was tellingly significant. But thirdly this, why is Jesus so unequivocally certain that the scripture cannot be broken? It's not a personal judgment, actually, that he is passing on Scripture. It cannot be broken because Scripture is nothing less than the Word of God. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the Word of God came... And Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus equates Scripture with the Word of God. Scripture is natively, inherently infallible and therefore inerrant. Because for Jesus, Scripture is nothing less than the very Word of God. The God who cannot lie. The God who is incapable of deception. The God who is truth itself. This is why John Calvin wrote, we owe to scripture the same reverence we owe to God because it has its only source in him. Now Calvin is not ignoring the humanity of scripture. If anyone again and again and again Took pains to highlight the idiosyncratic nature of the different biblical writers. It was John Calvin. He's not glossing over, far less ignoring, the humanity of Scripture. He is simply reminding us of the fundamental truth of Scripture. We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because it has its only source in Him. He's not being a bibliolater. He is simply refusing to separate the words of God from the character of God. Now, my words are less than flawless because my character and nature are yet less than flawless. But Scripture cannot be broken because God is who he is. It's our doctrine of God As we heard earlier from Carl, that gives significance and weight to our doctrine of Scripture. Just think with me for a little how this conviction regarding the complete trustworthiness of Scripture was played out in our Lord Jesus' life you know that his whole public ministry was bookended by his undeviating commitment to the absolute unbreakable trustworthiness of Scripture. We see this in in three phases. First of all, what was his response to Satan's temptations at the beginning of his public ministry? You remember in the wilderness, the Spirit has driven him purposefully into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what is the great response of the Lord Jesus Christ as he initiates and inaugurates through his, his baptism and his temptations in the wilderness, his public ministry, he responds in three occasions, it is written, it is written, it is written, written. Gegraptai. His public ministry is inaugurated by the self-confession that he rests the weight of all that he is on the authority, the unbreachable, unbreakable, indefectible authority of the Word of God. 30 times in his ministry as it's recorded in the Gospels We find our Lord Jesus Christ saying, it is written. And that was enough to silence every cavil, to respond to every question. It is written without qualification. He sometimes quotes texts 1,500 years before his own time. He doesn't qualify them thinking of the the social and cultural changes that have occurred over 1,500 years. It's enough for the Son of God in our flesh to say, it is written. And then the second phase, just jumping ahead to his sufferings and cross. What was his great comfort as he faced and endured the nightmare prospect of the cross? Why must he die? Matthew 26 The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Why must he be betrayed, John 13? But the scripture will be fulfilled. Why must he be left alone, Mark 14? As it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Why must he be so hated, John 15? The word that is written must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Why does he not use his power to escape the cross? Matthew 26. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? And what words are found on his lips? As the weight of our sin presses upon his being. Eloi, Eloi, lama My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. In every phase of our Lord's life, he lived out his conviction that scripture cannot be broken. And we see that, thirdly, after the resurrection, nothing has changed. Remember how he falls into step with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And how that's climaxed in the Lord Jesus Christ gently but firmly scolding them. And he begins to open up to them the Scriptures in all their fullness beginning with the law of Moses and prophets, and the resurrection doesn't change anything. The conviction that Scripture is the Word of God and cannot be broken, and is to be believed and obeyed and loved, and is to shape our lives, not simply intellectually, but morally, and in every other sphere of our lives, was the heart conviction of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that I think is common fear for all of us. I'm not saying anything that any of us here would think was particularly rocket science. This is the 101, isn't it, of evangelical Christianity. For Jesus Christ, It is absolutely clear from the pages of the Gospels that for him, Scripture was the unbreakable, authoritative, divinely given Word of God. But the question that intrigues me, and perhaps it's intrigued many of you, is this How did Jesus come to the conviction that Scripture cannot be broken? How did he arrive at that conviction? Now, I ask that question for this particular reason. The humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ was a true humanity. It was a real humanity. He was born of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And if we were simply to think that because he was the eternal Son of God, he natively, by virtue of the hypostatic union, knew that Scripture was the true authoritative, infallibly true and authoritative and inerrant word of God. His humanity would be at a distance from my humanity. The Scriptures themselves help us somewhat, to grasp, if only a little, how it must have been for our Lord Jesus Christ in our humanity to arrive at this conviction that Scripture cannot be broken. You'll remember how in Luke chapter 2, We are told of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was 12 years old. You know the the account well. His parents leave Jerusalem thinking he is with the wider family, but supposing him to be in the group. But then they go forward. He's not there, so they return. And what do they find him doing? They find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, And asking them questions. And Luke concludes that second chapter with these words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom, in favor with God, and in stature. The writer to the Hebrews says something similar, doesn't he, in Hebrews 5, that Jesus learned obedience. He was not excused the maturative process of humanity, of being a true man. He was not exempt from the intellective learning process. And this significantly... Is one of the striking features that's brought out in the Third Servant song in Isaiah 50. And again, you'll know these words well. The Messiah himself is speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now notice these words. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not back. The Lord Jesus Christ in our flesh was not excused the maturative processes of growth, of development. He was not excused the discipline of listening and learning. Now unlike us, he had a sinless heart and life when the word of God came to him. It met with no resistance and no hindrance. As it does with us, we need the Spirit to regenerate us. Not so our Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, there was this incremental, maturative process in his human development. He increased in wisdom, in favor with God and with man. Not from the less wise to the more wise. But at the age of one, he was as perfect in wisdom as a one-year-old could be. At the age of five, as perfect as a five-year-old could be. And so the maturative process continued. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. I have little doubt that our Lord Jesus Christ, every morning, if I can speak thus, would pray, Father, open my eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. And isn't it striking that his mother Mary was a scripture-saturated woman? In the Magnificat, you you can't escape the remarkable saturation of her mind in Holy Scripture. And this was the home in which our Lord Jesus Christ was raised. I hope you know these great words in Psalm 22. Again, applied to the Messiah. Yet you were he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. The Lord Jesus Christ was placed in a womb and then in a home where he would be exposed day by day by day to the living word of the living God, his Father. His humanity was a true humanity. And what we see in the third servant's song, perhaps above all, is that a conviction about inerrancy and faithful discipleship go hand in hand. The abandonment of a commitment to an inerrant Bible is always the fruit of a life that has drifted from faithful discipleship. Our Lord is the prototypical man of faith. He is the prototypical servant of the Lord. And we see in his true humanity that morning by morning, day by day, week by week, God opened his ear to hear, opened his heart to receive. Carol touched on this earlier, and I hope that we took it deeply to heart. There is always the danger of becoming Pharisaic in our pride that we are men, unlike these rotten liberals who Despise the word of God and who believe in limited inerrancy we are jot and tittle inerrantists the Pharisees were the Pharisees were so let me make a few conclusions and implications from what I've been saying and the first is this and I wonder if we seriously grasp this Inerrancy is as much a dogma of the faith as the Holy Trinity, the hypostatic union, and union with Christ. We don't have answers to all the questions posed regarding biblical inerrancy, do we? The quote from Augustine was just great. We don't have all the answers to all the questions, but nor do we have all the answers to all the questions regarding the Holy Trinity. That the one God should be three. That the three persons should be one God. The hypostatic union. The union in Christ of two natures. We can talk about it, but the moment we open our mouths, we are out of our depths. And all we can say with Paul is at the end of Romans 11 as he comes to conclude his astonishing exposition of what he calls the gospel of God and my gospel. How does Paul end? Oh, the depths, both of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out for who has known the mind of the Lord. Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? It doesn't perplex Paul that he's out of his depth. That God's ways are unsearchable. That his revelation is beyond his fathoming. He simply concludes, and from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Inerrancy is as much a dogma of the faith as the Holy Trinity, the hypostatic union, and union with Christ. We can talk about union with Christ. We can talk about its federal aspect, its spiritual aspect, its mystical aspect, its real aspect. And at the end of it, all we're saying is, Lord, we know but little. There's much we cannot fathom. And it's the same with inerrancy. Are there difficulties? Absolutely. Are there problems? Absolutely. Do the problems and the difficulties confound us? Absolutely not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Secondly, and I want to say this again, although i said it I think twice before. The Pharisees believed the Scripture... Could not be broken. The Pharisees were the cast iron Calvinists of their day. They believed in the sovereignty of God, they believed in divine election, they believed in jot and tittle inerrancy. Brothers, we need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful lest we drift into reformed Phariseeism. And give the impression, who is like unto us? Aren't we just the best of the best? Brothers, when you hold to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, it makes you little And makes God great. But the third thing is this. Why actually, when it comes down to it, do we believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures? For one simple reason, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. It's a matter of submission to the Lordship of our Savior. That's why we are inerrantists. Not because we are post-enlightenment logicians. It belongs to our submission to the Son of God who loved us, who gave himself for us, who became flesh for us, who reigns at the right hand of the Father for us, who is coming again for us. It's part of our submission to him. This was and continues to be the doctrine of Christ. But would it not be the greatest tragedy if we were men who publicly and even passionately defended the inerrancy of God's word but were not at the same time noted as men who loved the Savior, served his people, loved their wives, cherished their children, had compassion for the lost, and loved God's law? Would we not contradict by our lives what we professed with our lips? I wondered long and hard what to say today and how to end this brief address and it seems to me that it's this that I want to say that a true commitment to biblical inerrancy will reveal itself in a Christ-like lifestyle This is my first time at this conference. And I've regularly been asked, well, what are you making of it? It's so different from anything I've ever been to. You know what's impressed me more than anything else thus far? I've enjoyed the addresses, let me tell you. But what has really impressed me has been the kindness, the servant heart, the thoughtfulness, of all the volunteers. Now, I'm not used to being clapped. I'm a Scotsman. We don't take that very easily. <laughs> but why do I mention that? For th- for this reason, John MacArthur's ministry is talked about all over the world wisdom is justified of its children how do we know that John MacArthur's ministry and the ministry of others who serve here is of God and blessed of God by the fruit that it bears brothers when we are heart and soul committed to the biblical doctrine of inerrancy for that is the Bible's own conviction concerning itself that will betray itself if it is truly a commitment to the lordship of God in his word, for that's what biblical inerrancy is, the lordship of God in his word, that will betray itself in a servant lifestyle. Isn't it remarkable that the only time the Lord Jesus Christ ever drew attention to personal qualities in his life. I think this is right. Is when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? For I am gentle and humble of heart. The Savior who said, Scripture cannot be broken. The Savior, whose whole life was shaped by the unbreakableness of the Word of God. The Savior, who expired with the Word of God upon his lips, was the Savior who modeled a lifestyle of submissiveness to the Word of God. And that lifestyle of submissiveness to the Word is seen in a servant lifestyle, in a lifestyle that makes nothing of itself and makes everything of Jesus Christ. Brothers, we are called to hold fast to the written revelation of God. May God grant us the grace to hold it fast not squeezing the life out of it, not portraying it as clinical and cold and metallic and merely logical, but holding it as men who when we speak of it and preach of it, people will say, there is an aroma of Jesus Christ about that man's life. Let me then listen to what he's saying about the Word of God that has shaped his life. Let us pray. Father, we are shamed beyond any words by how unlike your Son we are. Forgive us, Lord, and may our lives evidence more and more and more what it means truly to live under the lordship of your word, your word that is rich in grace and full of mercy, your word that is bold and true and courageous and authoritative, and yet that reaches out to embrace the weak and the poor and the needy and the sad and the lonely and the fearful and the brokenhearted. Father, make us like the prototypical servant of the Lord. Make our lives to reflect something of the aroma of Jesus Christ as we hold out his truth. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.